0: that opportunity to really develop this amazing therapeutic relationship with the patient where I get to learn what's important to you. What are your values? What are your goals in life? What does your life look like? What are your responsibilities? And when you have that bigger context, I'm able to support people on such a deeper level. Welcome to the Anthropology Podcast. I'm your host, Megan
1: Walker. As a former naturopathic doctor and anthropologist, I align the intersection of personal performance, purpose, and innovative thinking in badass women working to change the world as entrepreneurs and go-getters. Anthropology is the study and science of what makes an entrepreneur think, feel, and perform in a path compelled by a vision for helping others, solving problems, while building a life on your own terms. Together, we are exploring the health, mindset, and strategies that distinguish the world's best entrepreneurs. This is the Anthropology Podcast. Welcome to episode 261 of the Anthropology Podcast. I am your host, Megan Walker. Here's my question for you. Have you ever been in a mood? Have you ever... Felt depressed, not just like the little bit of depressed that you get every once in a while or after watching a sad rom com, but like the kind of depressed where you're like, I cannot shake this. Not the kind of depressed where maybe you forgot tomorrow you're coming on your period, but like really low and can't get out of it. Or that anxiety that you can't escape, not the kind of anxiety where I'm about to get on stage in front of 400 people and then it dissipates, but that inescapable anxiety that is pervasive throughout your day. Yeah. So have one in four other. People. Mental health issues are not something that remains in the realm of others. Mental health is something that touches all of us. And while it is part of the normal spectrum of life, what isn't normal is the way we sweep it under the rug, the way we simply medicate so that we can compartmentalize and ignore it. There are so many incredible options when it comes to managing our mental health, when it comes to acknowledging the root cause of why we feel the way that we do. And my guest today has made it her life's work to help us not only understand the root cause of our mood and of our mental health challenges, but also what we can do about it, not simply through pharmaceutical intervention, but sometimes, but also through lifestyle choices, through the assessment of nutritional deficiencies, and by understanding the relationship between mood and complex hormonal systems. Dr. Stephanie Bayliss is a naturopathic doctor practicing in Victoria, BC. She is a friend, she's a colleague, and she's an amazing resource. And I am super excited to introduce you to her now. Dr. Stephanie Bayliss, welcome to the Anthropology
0: Podcast. Hi Megan. Thanks for having me. Super excited
1: to be here. Well, we have got like we've got some stuff to discuss. When I asked you to be here and we were we were conversing about this, Dr. Stephanie's got a ton of expertise across a wide variety of things, but her most favorite thing to talk about is sort of the intersection of these health elements and mood and mental health. And that's where we're going to hang out today. So before we jump into this, before we start talking about moodiness, what it is, and how we assist it and the broad spectrum of mental health support that we can put in place for women, can you give everyone a little bit of a background in terms of who you are and why you're so uniquely positioned to talk about this?
0: Yeah, totally. So I'm an naturopathic doctor. I practice in British Columbia, Canada specifically practice on Vancouver Island in Victoria, my area of practice focus is primarily nearly exclusively with women and supporting mood concerns primarily. So I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Victoria in biopsychology. So very early on in my educational time, became very interested in the brain, everything the brain and how we can support the brain. And I've been particularly fascinated with There's actually so much stuff that we can do to support mental health beyond just the traditional medication approach that is often touted as the only option. So I'm really passionate about supporting and educating people on all the options that are actually available to them. Well, and I actually really love the
1: title, like the concept of talking about mood as this like blanket umbrella piece, because I have found sometimes when we get discussing the concept of mental health, people go, Oh, like my mental health is fine. I'm just like, I'm in a bit of a slump right now. You and I have talked about this before. I feel that we have this tendency to opt ourselves out of discussions. But I would venture to say there are very few residents of planet Earth in our current time of February 2022, who aren't finding them in some type of mood. Because it has been a challenging period of time. So when we talk about this idea of mood, like, just start us off, like, how would we define that piece so that we're
0: encompassing? I think most of the time, people are just like, I'm fine. It's fine. I'm just it is what it is There's something I can do. And I think that it's a real shame because I feel like, you know, what we know as, you know, Statistics Canada released in the fall, that pre-pandemic, we were at like one in five mood disorders being diagnosed. Fast forward to spring of 2021, we were at one in four. So really, like you said, residents of planet Earth are struggling. And I think that there is a large majority of people that are struggling who are not getting help. And so to articulate a little bit more, like some signs that you might need help are feeling sad, hopeless. That's not really explainable by any other reason. Loss of interest or pleasure in the things that you usually enjoy. So maybe you used to really enjoy your job or spending time with your kids or being really active. And those things are not giving you the same pleasure or joy that they used to. Changes in weight in either direction, either weight loss or weight gain. And then with that can be you know, changes in appetite, maybe sleeping all the time or not sleeping at all. And often just feeling worthless and tired. And maybe in more extreme situations, also having some suicidal thoughts to go along those symptoms.
1: If we are traditionally looking at the management of mood, and my experience also with this is that people hang out in it and they self medicate for a period of time. And then it's not until someone says you should really do something about it, or they have, you know, the straw breaks the camel's back and we're so deep into it that they go and they maybe see their doctor or they seek some additional help. When we're talking about intervening on that mood piece, when and what are we looking for? Because I think a lot of people are going to be like, yes, I feel sad. And yes, I feel a lack of joy. And do I need help? And where does that fall on that spectrum? When do we know that we
0: actually need assistance with this piece? I think a lot of people aren't sure. So it's a good question to ask. I feel pretty strongly that as soon as you, what I would call your activities of daily living are being impacted. So like you're not able to do your job or you're not able to, you know, show up in your parenting roles or your other responsibilities. And also if you're just not feeling great, I think it's honestly, you should be reaching out and seeking help as soon as that's happening. Cause the sooner you can start that dialogue with your healthcare provider, the better, really.
1: And I'm just going to throw out there for everybody, another sign and symptom is the rest of the world is an idiot. I've shared this before. Like every once in a while, another driver will tick you off. And you're like, wait a second, that's not cool. But when all of the other drivers on the road are starting to make you angry, it's probably not them. It's probably you. And I share that because that is totally what happens to me. And I've said to my whole family, I know that it is me, not you, when you are all driving me up the wall at the same time. And I I do actually think we all need support right now. It's just the degree to which that is taking place. And what I'm really excited to jump into on this is, and I don't think either one of us are saying that medication is a bad option. I just think one of the frustrations and challenges probably for both of us professionally have been those individuals where that's really been the only option that has presented them. You're feeling like shit for an extended period of time. Here's a drug that will neutralize that sentiment. And I think there's this massive opportunity right now for us to start to look at mood and mental health from a more robust perspective, can you just share with your expertise, when we start to go upstream and look at things from a root cause perspective, all of the stuff that we can start to address
0: before just numbing out our feelings? Yes, definitely. I can do that. So you're right. Like it really is the medication that's often pushed first. And it's not to say that medications are wrong. They definitely have a role. I prescribe them in my practice, but we really want to have a larger conversation. So I always like to framework it under, you know, like a behavioral approach or a biochemical approach. And so behavioral would be lots of the lifestyle pieces, like making sure you're getting enough sleep, making sure your nutrition is really foundational, making sure you're moving your body, getting outside, connecting with community, getting a counselor or therapist, which I highly recommend everybody does. Those would be the more behavioral approaches. And then there's the biochemical piece. So that would fall under medications, definitely. But there's also, you know, nutraceutical options, herbal medicine options, like the research is exploding with things over and above medications, because believe it or not, There's a lot of people who go on medications and they make that decision, which is a huge decision, but then they don't work or they're what we would call non-responders. And so that really lays a great opportunity for these other options like nutraceuticals or herbal medicine to play a really profound role because I would say sometimes they are better tolerated, not in all cases, but in some cases, the side effect profile is a little bit better. If there's a mental health block there of like, I don't want to go on medications and there's for some reason, they're really not wanting to do that starting something like an herbal medicine or a nutraceutical just sort of opens that door of like, okay, maybe this is going to be the thing that's going to help for a little bit. So then you can engage more with some of those lifestyle behavioral pieces that are also going to have a big impact. To be very clear for everyone listening, there's no part of us that
1: are like anti-medication on this. I suspect, well, I'll just share where I'm coming from, is that nine times out of 10, we probably have a ton of other options before we have to leverage that tool. And what becomes challenging as a clinician is being aware that there are all of these contributing factors that we can start to address in someone's health, and they're frequently overlooked, either the lack of experience in a prescribing physician's office or an overstretched and pressured healthcare system that doesn't have time to unpack those pieces. For anyone who has made that choice, had that choice offered to them, know people who are on that, and listen, probably a third of our middle-aged population is like sitting or leveraging or has a prescription for some type of antidepressant right now. So we're not talking about a small percentage of the population. The opportunity in this conversation is to know that you actually have more control over your mental health destiny than simply having a medication or being victim to your genetics or inherent neurochemistry. Just like any other manifestation in our body, we can make different choices when we know better, do better, and have things shift and change in a direction that works better for all of us. I really wanted to be clear on the spirit of that conversation. So also we don't have to answer every conversation with, it's okay if you're on medication, but. So now that we've established this baseline of awesome tool and we have others, I'd love to get a sense from your experience, uh, Stephanie, around the role that the birth control pill in particular can play in terms of influencing mood. Because I feel like this is often, while we're talking about medication, an elephant in the room when it comes to mood and when it comes to anxiety in women. And I just want to shed some light on that.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And also to reiterate, I agree with what you said. Medications are very important. And I always tell people we want to have a bridge, right? So whatever it's going to be, the medication is can be super important. And oftentimes you just need to do something. So there's absolutely no shame or judgment from me on that. And I support all of those decisions. Now, the birth control pill is definitely a controversial topic. The research is pretty clear. There isn't a slight increased risk in depression prevalence in women who are taking a birth control pill. And I would say clinically, I see that happen. Definitely. All that being said, I would say the large majority of people who are on a birth control pill tolerate it fairly well. There are people though, where there is the increase in mood symptoms and it's something that needs to be explored because it's often something that's overlooked. And so that's why having a healthcare provider where you can kind of go deeper on the conversation of like, okay, well, when did the mood symptoms start? Like what was going on around that time? Oh, okay. You started the birth control pill then and those sorts of things. And also let me be clear, the birth control pill, a thousand percent plays a very important role for contraception. So I'm not shaming the birth control pill at all. A hundred we're percent. We're not having a conversation
1: about birth control. I just think sometimes we are given these things and then it's constantly dismissed. So I would like, I, when I was on the birth control pill, like literally decades ago, I, it was the only time in my life where I was like, I don't know who I am. Like, I am not an inherently anxious person. My mood is pretty stable. I had no clue who this human was who was like thinking and residing inside my body. And I had to really come to that conclusion and that discovery myself, because anytime I would bring it up with that, my prescribing physician, they're like, well, there's just no evidence to support that. So there's gotta be another explanation. And over the course of my career, I encountered this over and over and over again. There was a
0: dismissal of that association.
1: And so I think it's just important people know. For
0: sure. And I would also say it's a real shame that it's not brought up more. And it's so unfortunate that for women, there is such limited options because, you know, if you have a mood disorder and then you're going to be looking at going on some kind of hormonal contraception and there is that increased risk, it sucks, right? Because you're weighing the like, well, I need contraception, but like my mood might tank and I might feel like I'm crawling out of my skin. So it's a hard, tricky place to navigate. Definitely.
1: And when your mood tanks, you don't really need the contraception the same way. All right, Like so there's just this downward spiral that can start to take place. We've noted there is an association with the birth control pill. Can we just speak generally about the relationship between hormones, hormonal fluctuation and mood beyond this sort of standard colloquial? Are you on your period? The most like horrid thing that we could possibly ask women, can we get much more clinical than that in terms of understanding the relationship between uh, hormones and
0: our mood? Foundationally, women are at at least twice of a risk than men for depression. So, right away, right there, we know there probably is a reason for that. And really, these hormonal fluctuations that happen naturally across the course of a woman's life are playing into that to some extent. You know, some examples are things like PMS, which you kind of mentioned. You know, one in three women will experience pretty intense PMS symptoms, specifically mood ones. Depression and menopause, you know, it can be, some studies are showing it's like up to 40% of women who transition through perimenopause to menopause experience depression. Same thing happens postpartum, after pregnancy, and then through adolescence, the hormonal changes that happen then too. So there definitely is a very clear hormonal connection that's happening. And it's not necessarily that like estrogen is low or progesterone is low or vice versa. It's definitely just, we we know now it's more of the sensitivity to those hormonal fluctuations that are likely triggering some of those mood symptoms that are coming up. And so it's good to know that there is actually options for supporting those transitions for people. And it doesn't necessarily just mean to be like, put your head down and suffer through it. What are some of those treatment options? Good question. I mean, for PMS, there's great options. I mean, obviously, without saying more, but like medications are a a solution for a lot of people on that front, for sure. And then when we're thinking about like naturopathic or nutraceutical options, one of the herbs that's been studied a lot is something called Chastry or Vitex is a really good option for PMS. Calcium supplementation, treating and correcting a vitamin D deficiency is going to be important in those circumstances. And then for perimenopause to menopause, similar things can be useful, like the ones I just mentioned, and also HRT or hormone replacement therapy does have a role in those times as well.
1: You mentioned these nutritional deficiencies, and, and this is something that I find we tend to overlook because we have a robust diet in the developed world. So we're not walking through the door with frank deficiency, with rickets, with scurvy. Like these are not concerns that we see clinically. I did see one case of scurvy, but we generally don't see these in practice, but we do see functional deficiencies where you can still carry on and get out of bed and do your thing, but it's like an overpicked pantry. So you're trying to pull together a meal and you're like, I've got no ingredients here to work from. And so it's harder for the body. And so when you are assessing someone with respect to mood, what type of nutritional profiles are you looking at? And what are you seeing? From a dietary
0: perspective, often one of the bigger, I will say red flags or nutritional areas where we're not seeing optimization happening is with protein. That's a big one. I see this very commonly in women. I honestly think a lot of the people walking through my door, if they knew beforehand, just the really important role that protein plays, a lot of symptoms can be improved, with just optimizing that in your diet and making sure you're getting an adequate amount of protein breakfast, lunch, and dinner, not just with dinner. And protein doesn't necessarily mean just meat. There also has vegetarian protein options too, like beans, lentils, legumes. And then iron deficiency is huge. That's another big one that will impact mood kind of across the lifespan. It's not just... If you're having a heavy period in your 20s, it's something that can happen all across a woman's life. So you really want to make sure that's getting assessed. And then, of course, I can't not say vitamin D is going to be another big one that you want to make sure is getting looked at and assessed because we live in a super dark place during the winter. And just being in Canada, we're not getting the amazing sun exposure that we want to be getting all year round.
1: Can we just talk a little bit and unpack this notion of a vegetarian diet? I'm going to just push you to the brink of of all of these pieces. But when we do look at the literature, there is evidence to support that there's an increased risk of anxiety and depression in vegan and vegetarian women. Is that your experience clinically? Yes. Okay. Let's unpack that. Yes. Talk to us. This isn't even a question. I'm just opening the
0: floor. Talk to us about vegan and vegetarian diets and mood. Yeah, I would say that is something I see commonly. I'm sure you saw that in practice as well. And again, nothing against vegan and vegetarian diets, they can be done correctly and properly. It's just, there's got to be a lot of thought and intention and care put in to make sure you're getting all the nutrients and hitting your targets of what you need to be getting in a day. And it's a lot of work to make sure that you're doing that. And so I see oftentimes people, especially, you know, not understating the environmental impacts of our like standard American diet, But I see a lot of people be like, okay, I'm going to transition towards eating more plant based. And chances are your body is going to be able to compensate for some period of time. You know, maybe it's three months, maybe it's a year. There's a period of time where you're not necessarily feeling those deficiencies starting to creep in, primarily protein, maybe fatty acids being another one, iron being another one. Your body's going to compensate. And then at some point, they'll, and if again, you're not doing it properly and like a grilled cheese and like fries and like a cheeseburger is chips is your standard (laughs) vegan or vegetarian diet, that is obviously not going to be very nutritionally sound, your body's not gonna be able to continue to compensate. And then they land in my chair. And they are like, okay, I feel, you know, fatigue, drained, mentally flat. And then we go through the nutritional recall of like, what are you eating? The protein is a huge missing piece. And I always love to ask the question, where are you getting your protein? And they're just like, sometimes like, oh, like, I don't know, avocados avocado, yeah. <laughs> or like my vegetables. And I'm like, well, not quite. And so that often can be like a real game changer for people if they start to increase the protein in their diet, even if it's just vegetarian sources of protein. But of course, You have to enjoy beans, lentils, legumes, tempeh, tofu. And oftentimes eating a standard American diet, we're not accustomed to enjoying those foods and those being a part of our regular routine of what a nutritional plan would look like. So, and they obviously can create more digestive upset in some situations. So it's not always an easy fix for people. You know, my experience is that it's super
1: hard to navigate a vegan or
0: vegetarian diet. It is also my
1: experience that individuals who have decided to truly, truly lean into this lifestyle as opposed to experimenting with it are actually extremely well informed on how to navigate some of these elements. Like it becomes, I'm not going to say a hobby, but kind of like that, right? Where they're just like they're devouring information related to those pieces. Notwithstanding, one of the things I did see in my practice is there's individuals who genetically, when we start to pull apart those genes, they are just not genetically predisposed to being able to manage a vegan or vegetarian diet as well as someone else. And I think we've made these diets social as opposed to making these diets based on our own individualized biochemistry or genetics. And, you know, speaking to this idea of individualized medicine, what is some of the frameworks that you bring to the table as a clinician to individualize one's treatment of mood and mental health? What is the spectrum of testing that you look at? And then what's your approach to working with them?
0: Yeah, this individualized approach Especially for mental health, is so important because you know if you walk into that appointment with the walk-in clinic doctor and you've got like seven to ten minutes, how are you going to explain what's going on? And if you happen to get a question about your mood, you're probably just going to say I'm fine. And so, as obviously as an naturopathic doctor, I'm biased, but that opportunity to really develop this amazing therapeutic relationship with the patient, where I get to learn what's important to you, what are your values, what are your goals in life, what does your life look like, what are your responsibilities, and when you have that bigger context, I'm able to support people on such a deeper level. And then chances are the recommendation that I make is gonna be met with, well, she knows me really well and she understands what is important to me. And she took the time to review the risks and benefits because we had that longer appointment. Compliance is gonna be better. And actually there's research to suggest the treatment will probably work better because if the patient thinks it's gonna work, that also plays into it. There's such a strong placebo effect in treating mental health. You just often need to do something. And so if you trust your care provider, it's just gonna be so much deeper. And so on a bigger level, looking at assessment, Obviously, having a really deep conversation about nutrition, looking at sleep, looking at lifestyle and exercise. And once all those pieces are assessed, like the biochemical assessment, again, speaking primarily to women, we're going to be looking at some nutrients like iron, like vitamin D, checking thyroid, can't not mention hypothyroidism and thyroid dysfunction in supporting mental health. There's a huge prevalence of depression amongst women who have hypothyroidism. And then obviously looking at things like blood sugar and insulin levels, those are going to play a big role in treating mood as well, making sure your blood sugar is balanced. Looking at cholesterol levels is actually important. There's some research showing that like low levels of good cholesterol are actually associated with higher incidence of depression. And then looking at inflammation markers like the C-reactive protein, there's some interesting data coming out showing that one theory of mood disorders is actually an inflammatory origin in our brain that there's just an increased level of inflammation and that is potentially contributing to symptoms. So assessing inflammation on a whole is really important. I would say that's the like broad strokes assessment for mental health as a starting point anyway. Is depression a symptom? Yeah, it totally can be.
1: Yeah, because as soon as we shift from it is the end point to it's a sign of, it totally changes the landscape of what
0: is available and open to us in terms of that treatment. I couldn't agree more. And I think that is Something that's often missed out is like that is the end point. And it's like, well, no, like if you look at the greater picture of what's going on in an individual's life, it's like, well, who wouldn't be feeling these symptoms, right? Or who wouldn't be feeling this way because they're not set up to thrive.
1: Can we get slightly more granular beyond just, and I don't mean just isn't just, but like beyond depression and anxiety? Because anxiety is associated with different nutrient profiles. It's associated with different hormonal profiles. I don't think that there's any of us who have escaped in the very least momentary levels of anxiety over the course of the last two years. And that's probably normal given the state of the world. And then there's this pervasive state of anxiety. Can you speak to a little bit how it is different biochemically and clinically than depression?
0: It presents completely differently, right? And I usually am asking all of my patients who are presenting on either end of the spectrum, you know, where are you on the depression scale? Where are you on the anxiety scale and doing a really thorough assessment from both ends? Anxiety is going to present way more as like repetitive thinking, really ruminating or overthinking on things. When I say you feel anxious in your body, I'm sure a lot of people know what that means, right? It's just this like agitation, chest tightness, maybe your shoulders are up to your ears. You're not sleeping probably, you feel really like terrible sense of being wired all the time and an inability to relax. That's quite different than depression oftentimes, but they often co-occur, like and what can happen is as depression is improving, you know, symptoms of, of anxiety will manifest or vice versa. And so They're definitely both sides of the same coin.
1: When you're working with anyone to look at anxiety or depression or anything else on a spectrum of mood, what does your clinical approach look like? What is that experience? What sorts of things are you actually starting to shift and
0: change in their life beyond medication? So again, like if we're at the conversation point of like, okay, you're not able to, at this point, engage in some of those lifestyle choices and behaviors that need to happen what are we going to do to get you there? So then I will engage a conversation of like, do you feel like a medication is something you want to do? We sort of pivot from there. And so when we're looking at you know herbal medicine, some of the things that are really coming out as shining stars when we're looking at botanical and herbal medicine are things like St. John's wort really does seem to have a role. Curcumin, also known as turmeric, has a role. And then saffron way more research is coming out on saffron in the last few years and and which people are going to be like, that's a culinary herb. But it's really funny because it actually does have a a place. And then from a nutrient standpoint, supplementing with even things like probiotics can be beneficial. There's research showing that certain interactions of our gut microbiome are potentially worsening depression or anxiety. Omega-3 fatty acids have a role, folic acid or methylfolate, vitamin B9. And then one of the, I would say, better nutraceuticals is something called SAMe or S-adenosylmethionine. And that's something that's been shown time and time again to be quite effective for mild to moderate depression. And then once you know, we kind of decide on an intervention, it's just about checking in and in a frequent manner and seeing is it working? Are you improving? What's changing? And then just recircling back on like, okay, where can we improve the nutritional level? Where can we improve sleep? Where can we get you moving? And like, how are you creating meaning and joy in your life? All of those things come together into what I would call like a whole body approach to treating mental health. What
1: are some of the biggest lifestyle? movers when it comes to addressing mood like you just you have to do this thing or we're going to be stuck here forever like what are those things let's not be gentle on this like let's just call it like it is what do we actually have to make sure that you are doing in your
0: life to be able to move forward in this in this mood piece the first thing that comes to mind is alcohol reducing alcohol consumption across the board is likely something that really needs to happen. Although that can be a coping mechanism. So a good assessment and like big conversation about that. But we know alcohol does nothing but hurt mental health. So that really needs to be something to pivot away from. Getting outside every single day, like especially through the pandemic, I think I was seeing so much more where it was like, when was the last time you left the house? And it's like, oh, geez, like it's been like a while. If you don't have a pet, you know, and you don't have to walk your dog, you're maybe not going outside. So like sometimes my recommendation would be so simple. Like, get outside, go and sit on a bench if you don't even feel like you can walk, like just do that for 10 minutes. And then it's like, wow, I like feel more alive. Sleeping, getting eight hours of sleep. There's been lots of guests on Megan's podcast talking about the importance of sleep. We could talk about that forever, but you need eight hours, seven to eight hours. It's very important. I can't say that enough. What about exercise? So that falls into the like getting outside thing. So if I say like, we always are talking about like what can you do, right? So is it like, obviously it's so, so, so important. I mean, Health Canada recommends like 150 minutes of moderate to intense physical activity per week and i would say like the majority of people are not getting that and so we always want to start small like what do you feel like you can do how can we get you moving gain confidence and then once that's becoming more routine we want to build on that and like get you sweating get you lifting heavy things all of those pieces are going to be so important for mental health we know that that's actually one of the most effective interventions for supporting mood but the problem is is people can't do it so that's where some other sort of intervention is going to be the bridge to allow you to get to being able to exercise regularly again when you say people can't do it what do you mean it's just too hard like when you're really in that depressed, overwhelmed state of mind, getting like a laundry list of recommendations, one of which is like, go for a run three times a week for 30 minutes. It's like, well, I can't do that. Like that's, you got to start small, right? So I think for some people, especially when they're in a really low state, or their lifestyle is just so overwhelming and busy, it's hard to carve out the time. So it's about trying to meet those goals wherever we can, at the beginning, at least.
1: No, I totally appreciate that. It's a challenging piece for everyone. And it's in part why I was like, but we also have to call some of these components out because there are some really compelling elements that enable us to start to shape and gain control over our mental health. And often we have this, we have a block where like, I would love to exercise, but so what else, how can I have optimal health, but not have to do these three or four key things? I saw this in my practice a lot. I'd have people come in and I was working with high performing people in their jobs and work. And we talked about exercise I'm like, I've got a gym membership and they'd move on be ready for the next question. I'd say, but how do you, do you go to the gym? They're like, I do. And I got really smart. Eventually, I was like, do you go to the gym beyond sitting in the steam room at Equinox? And they were like, there's just this silent look of shame on their face. They're like, are you a member there too? Like, no, but you guys all do it. You have like business lunches in the steam room at Equinox. And so you're willing to get sweaty and you're willing to do these things. I do think, you know, there's absolutely a trajectory that we need to build towards, uh, but we still need to make sure that those checkboxes are getting checked off and the steam room at Equinox does not count I know you probably
0: can't be in a steam room right now no definitely not but I mean and I'm sure Megan for you too and me like if I exercise first in the m- thing in the morning I have a such a better day like it's like exceptionally different like the trajectory of like my day and my happiness and my mood and how I show up with patients and my friends and my family completely different if I exercise in the morning I will just share
1: like this is not something gosh you're feeling anxious and depressed please don't try to like add willpower. On top of all of these components, the only way I exercise first thing in the morning is when I literally drop my clothing outside my bedroom door and I get up and I go make my kids lunches. I have to step over it. Like I have set my environment up to make these pieces easier in my life and any lifestyle adoption, gosh, I'm going to just speak for myself that I want to change a habit on. I have to literally line it up in the course of my day. It can't be an outlier. It can't be a place I have to drive to. My weights and my heavy lifting stuff are in my house because my life is really busy. Like I just, it's not going to happen if I I don't have to literally step over these things to move through the course of my day. It has to be simple, but I just wanted to bring that willpower piece to the table because it can't be an exercise in willpower. It actually has to be something that intersects your daily living. Yes, that wasn't a question. That was just a diatribe on my side about getting stuff done and integrating these pieces. I feel like this is a perfect place To transition the interview, I've got these things I call my impact metrics. And it's a series of rapid questions. And my first one that I have for you, Stephanie, coming out of a challenging two years for all global citizens, what has been the biggest personal lesson that you have taken away from that experience?
0: For me, it's been prioritizing the fundamentals. Like I kind of spoke to the exercise component, like it's so important that I keep moving my body, so important that I'm optimizing my nutrition, my sleep, engaging with friendship and community. And that I'm bringing those things into the conversation with my patients because actually supporting your own health, your health house is more important now than ever. Yeah, totally agree. How would you define your purpose? My purpose right now is to educate women that we deserve better when it comes to supporting our mental health and that there's actually loads of options available to us beyond medication or therapy, although those things are important, but it's very, very, very important. The other thing that I'm getting a lot of purpose and meaning out of right now is doing lots of dog training. And that's been another reason for me to pop out of bed in the morning is doing some training with my puppy.
1: It's amazing having a pet, like what that does to your mood and like the unconditional love is just... It's just the best. Awesome. Yes, it is the best. Last question for you. Entrepreneurship. Are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs?
0: I think it's both for me. I think I was probably born with it to some extent, but it was definitely modeled to me throughout my life uh, being in a family of entrepreneurs. So I think it's, I think it's a mix for people. Dr. Stephanie
1: Bales, it is always so much fun to be able to hang out with you. Where are we sending people so that they can learn a little bit more about the work that you are doing and to get them started with some resources for their mood and mental health?
0: I'm probably the most active on Instagram. So at Dr. Stephanie Bayless, and I know Megan, you'll link all these things up in the bio of the podcast episode. We
1: will. And I know you've got an amazing mini training on a whole body approach to mood and energy. So I'm going to make sure that we stick that into our show notes as well. Dr. Stephanie Bayless, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This was great. Pretty spectacular. I love Dr. Stephanie Bayless. I love her. I love her passion. I love how grounded she is. She is so compassionate and just a woman filled with so many incredible solutions. I encourage you, to follow her online, to check out the amazing gift that she offered all of us, you're going to be able to access that in our show notes by heading over to meganwalker.com forward slash podcast. It is the middle of the winter. It is a hard time to stay happy and focused and productive. If you want to hang out with other people, just like you, people who want to have impact on the world, I encourage you to come and hang in our online collective, the Anthropology Collective. You can find us on Facebook at facebook forward slash groups forward slash anthropology collectives. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, I am wishing you an amazing week of impact. I will talk to you again soon.